make sure my hands were clean and when I said to the audience, this is paper, yes. I meant that I'm not touching the actual cupcake book. And to be very honest with you, when you didn't ask the question, um, you put it out there as whether or not I identify as gay. And the answer is I don't identify as gay, but I do identify as bisexual. And that is something that I have never shared publicly before. One of our interns here, uh, she said that you make music for gays. I do. I'm not the intern. I mean, she looked at me like... <laughs> What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing wrong with that. So, no, I'm saying now. Welcome to the Black Sublime Podcast. This is your host, Mr. Haberdashri, aka Aolis White, aka The Power of One. Hey, hey. It begins with believing. Hey, hey, starts with the heart. Hey, flow with the soul. And changing the world. I don't know the words of that. But shout out to Donna Summer for that bop. For those of y'all who don't know that song, that was the song from Pokemon. So call me Mr. Pokemon, I guess, this episode. I don't actually know. Don't call me that. Don't call me that. But, um, yeah, that episode, that was a song from Pokemon in, like, 2000. Donna Summer laid the vocals on that. I actually didn't know that at the time. So I literally had no idea who this woman was singing this record. Um, but shout out to her for doing that. R.I.P., obviously. Um, yeah, this episode, I have a lot. It's gonna be a personal one, I think. I don't know, girl. I always say it's gonna be personal. And they all are. They all are. Um, even the ones that seem abstract or seem theoretical, like they are all personal. They are related to like how I navigate this space. What I started the podcast with was three clips. And I normally don't like doing three. I think I did three a couple I've done three before, but I, I try not to do three because I feel like it's long, but I had to include them all because I feel like they were all important. Especially, I, first of all, I enjoyed them all, particularly the first and the third. And aside from me just enjoying them and liking to laugh, I feel like they're important. So let's get into those. Um, I started with an old clip. And I don't even know if everyone's going to think it's funny, but it's something that if you know, like if you know the clip, it's hilarious. It's um, Tyra Banks' show way back, like her talk show. Her, I don't know who the woman was. It looked like Rachel Ray, but it wasn't. I don't know. I don't know. They all, you know, I don't know. But, like, Patty was on there. And the lady, y'all heard that, like, talking to her, though she's a complete fool, when Patty was actually ahead of her in terms of communicating with the audience was good about sanitation. And, you know, you just can't be doing wild shit to black people's food. So Patty had to make sure they knew what was, what was going on. Um... And I thought it was, well, I've included that because Versus was last night. I'm recording this on Monday. Versus with Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle was last night. And it just touched my heart. It filled me up. Like, watching, I saw this tweet that was like, we deserve 
to for to, for black women to age and to age in sisterhood and to age and you know be at the end of an amazing illustrious career i mean Patty and Gladys are people that are cornerstones in R&B, soul, even like a rock vocal coming from Patty. So, yeah, let's just give them flowers. And I loved it. That was the first verses that I actually watched, um, like, in the time. Like, I had seen a lot of clips. And on YouTube, there, there are entire clips of the verse the old verses so i used to just watch those you know and it's because like i don't really like i mean no shade i just haven't had to sit down and watch something at a particular time in years right like i didn't have a tv for a long time and then when i got a tv i got a roku so all of it well my stepfather gave me a roku or my parents gave me a roku tv so I just watched everything on demand and I never went back. Like, essentially, I was like, some, like, fuck that. Like, y'all want me to watch something at eight? They mean I gotta be there at a time? I am good. Y'all paying me or not? Nah, I'm so, you know, like, what, what, why? You know? So I really stopped doing that. But I watched it yesterday and it was worth it. It was great. It was beautiful. There, the second one was Andrew Gillum. I did talk about this on the podcast a while ago. I'm not sure. You know, I'm trying to keep my windows open, so it's gonna be shit from outside, but it gives you a nice, you know, feel of my life. You know what I'm saying? Um, but oh, yeah, the, I've talked about Andrew Gillum in the past, not extensively. I just was really hurt by the media coverage that he got when he had his issue that was an apparent overdose or whatever it was, but he was caught with alleged, like, male, like, gay strippers or sex workers or something. But I remember being disgusted by just the way they put his naked body on the news, in the newspaper, and I I thought and I talked about how they would never do that to a white man's body. They would never drag a white man like this. You know, when, and we actually came to see that happen, right? Where we had Lindsey Graham was had white sex workers that came out on Twitter and identified him as Lady G. No pictures. No, even though like he is in a conservative or at least center of a conservative state, like none of the things that would make you think controversy and like media exposés and that kind of like tactless bullshit, none of it came out for him. Yet for Andrew Gillum, it did. So um, it just it hurt me because it, it tied to my own fears of persecution, right? Like as a black queer man, as a queer man, period, you know, for a long time, I feared persecution. And I remember being in college and Alan Turner, I cried when I saw the fucking, what was it called? The goddamn... I don't know, the, the movie with Benedict Cumberbatch, The Imitation Game, I cried. And like I felt like I was on the plane, I was flying somewhere, and I was by myself, and I don't remember where I was coming from. But regardless, like I cried like a baby. Because in college, when I first discovered or learned about Alan Turing, 
and I learned that he was gay and I learned his role in the war and how this invention of computers and I read his essays and I learned about his contribution to philosophy, to computers, to computer science, to just like the whole concept of philosophy of mind, what it's like to be a human being. Like his thoughts were foundational for a lot of the things that were... He was so far ahead of his time that the questions that he posed in, like, the 40s are questions that philosophers and technologists are grappling with today. And his innovation helped win the war. And I remember feeling like... And then after all of that, he was chemically castrated and he killed himself because he's gay, because of his homosexuality. And they didn't fuck around in Britain. With that shit. That anti-buggery motherfucker, they weren't playing. And I remember feeling like if this white man who created a genre, like not even who created a field of study, who invented computers, who won a war, if he could be persecuted for his sexuality despite his contribution, then what hope is there for me? That's what I remember. I remember that's what I felt. And I was so... I mean, when I watched the movie, I cried. But when I read the text, I forgot what it's called. But when I read it in college and I was trying to, you know, I was in this class. I had grad students in it. And it was a really hard class. But it was great. I loved it. But it was really hard. Um, it's a philosophy of cognitive science class with a man that I still respect his mind. I don't really know. But anyway, anyway. Um, I never really, it was hard for me to deal with the text itself and deal with what I was learning when I was thinking about how I was going to be persecuted despite my contributions. And I thought about it heightens coming from a place of like not having rich family, coming from a place of, you know, blackness and all of that. So, yeah, it, it was definitely like stressful. Um when I saw them mistreat Andrew Gillum in this way. So I'm happy to hear him discuss his sexuality publicly. I'm happy to hear. I think his wife actually came out in support saying something about like bisexuality isn't really understood. I like, I'm assuming she's black. I don't know. But I just like, I think she's dumb. I remember seeing some photos but. I just like seeing black bisexuality being publicly supported and discussed because I feel like we allow white people to do more things. So white bisexual, I mean, there's a whole bunch. I hate having conversations with like white men about bisexuality because in a lot of ways, it's like white men, even though there's, a, I know the stigma is real, so I'm not going to try to minimize that at all, particularly in religious places and whatever. But it's just like, for whatever stigma exists about white bisexuality, just multiply that shit on black bodies. Just like multiply it. Um, so, yeah. And then the last one is my girl, Azelia. Azelia Banks. I talk. I just love that interview. It's a great interview. It was a long time coming. It's an old interview. I actually am not here for Charlemagne or DJ Envy at all. But you know, alleged, you know, I'm not going to you know allege sexual orientations. But I'll just say that Azealia handled herself really well. I think that 
it also reminded me of the Patty and I'm Glad It's Night versus because they publicly address love and, you know, express love for the gay community. And that is something, and how much they love us. And, like, that is something that you don't hear from a lot of celebrities. And, frankly, gay male, the gay male community, I think a combination of male privilege because of this economic power. But for, you know... For a host of reasons, gay men support artists. Like, black, by artists, I mean black, female, cisgender, straight artists. You know, like, we build their careers, we build their aesthetics, we, we create the lane for them, and we support them loyally for decades. Like, we, it's not like we just like your song. It's like we, you know, completely support everything you do. And I think it's good to get that recognition. It's good to be addressed. It's good for them to care about our rights and our, like, that is what I love to see and love to hear. And not in a way that's tongue-in-cheek, not in a way that's disingenuous, like it was real. I remember having this a version of this conversation about Kim Burrell, Kim Burrell and how she like, you know, had her beef, how she told her congregation basically that homosexuality was not the tea, but you know, had gay hairstylists, had gay makeup artists and stuff like that. And it's it was it's just you know, that's another thing that hurt me because gays have loved Kim Burrell forever. Um so yeah, it's, it was beautiful to see. It made me feel really, really, really good. So this episode, I have notes, but I don't, you know, I'm never a girl that, you know, really adheres to the notes. Like, that's never been my tea. What I'll say, um, though, is this one I really did want to kind of go through a relatively complicated, it's not complicated, but it's in my head, it's very weird. So I think I'm going to need some help, which is why I have my notes. So I may look over my notes are trash because I only have them in bullet point form because I'm trash. So I don't know. Well, that's not true. Well, I am trash, but it, it, I have them in bullet point form because I don't like, you know, being robotic. <laughs> I like to challenge myself to think on the spot and to connect with my emotions and my passions in the moment. So this, for a while, I've been thinking about closetedness and then true to form I started to realize that oh I'm actually thinking about what it means to be a what what wholeness is like what it means to be a whole person and then I got preoccupied with oneness with the number one itself and this is as y'all know I mean for the old listeners, you know I think of everything as connected as one thing. For new Nick, for the uh, I said new Nicks, for the new listeners, uh, I have an anxiety last mind that connects things all day. So I started thinking about like the number one and oneness and wholeness being related concepts, like an indivisibility. And when I started thinking about, when I started here and kind of related it to closetedness, it put me on a long ass journey that I'm going to share with you, motherfuckers, that I'm going to share with you, um, maybe. I may not show all the tea. 
But so I started with emotion. I started with emotion because I had just we just finished my in the book club that I'm in, we just finished rereading or reading um Sister Outsider by Audre Lord. And we I had read it a long time ago, so it was great to get a reread. And she always feeds, so she fed me again. Um, but I started thinking about acting. So 10 years ago, actually maybe more now, maybe like 12 years ago. It was 11 years ago. Uh, I did an acting class under David Emerson Tony, who's a fantastic actor. I think he teaches at VCU now, but he's you know, an actor. He's a great actor. He's a great writer. He's been in the game for a long time. And he said something to me. I remember I did my monologue the, for the first session. And it was a monologue that I had cut up from Joe Turner's Come and Gone that I loved. Um, and I had just done, like, some work. I had volunteered for this stage reading. So I got to meet the actors. They had done a reading. The Kennedy Center was doing a reading of all of the entire uh, cycle, all of August Wilson's work. So I, would, got, I was able to meet some of the actors there, and it just really inspired me. So I wanted to do my own version of it. When I did my work, you know, I thought it was a good performance, but he said something to me that session day one that really inspired me. He looked at me and he said, you are working, and I see that you're working, and I love that you're working, but emotion is going to, genuine emotion will power you, will energize you. If you just work your way through these roles and you work your way through these performances, you're going to be tired. You're going to be fatigued. You are going to exhaust yourself potentially mid-performance. This is when people see the cracks of the reality. When, and when actors are pulling, they're working their way, they're laboring their way through the work, through the show, they're not you having that genuine emotion energize and inspire and motivate them. And, you know, I thought about this recently in rereading the erotic, uh, reading uses of the erotic and just my understanding of the erotic. And I kind of realized in a lot of ways that emotion and passion, they are pockets of energy that need to be brought, that you need to have, that I need to have direct relationship with if I plan to survive in this fight, endure, endure the fight, endure the conflict, not even just in an oppositional framework, but if I need to, if I'm planning to live as, a, as one, live fully, richly, deeply, have a profound relationship with joy, a profound experience of joy, then my emotion, I need to be able to harness it fully and directly. It needs to take me over in a way. I mean, ideally, I it would be power that I can wield. And I don't want to use, I mean, when I say the word power, it always brings up like 
subjugation to me, and I don't mean it in that way. Like an electricity or some kind of, you know, kinetic energy or something that I can wield and twist and transform and apply. And when I feel, I think that that direct connection, the heat of it, will allow me not only to endure, but to thrive and grow in all of those things. And when I think of emotion in this way, and my desire and concern for having a whole rich experience of this, you know, one that is at the base of my breath, you know, the, my one that lives where my hunger is before I'm aware of my hunger. You know, one that comes before my, like, wherever my mind is before it is conscious of itself is my concern for joy, is my concern for a depth of pleasure and intimacy merging community and I urgently pursue it and you know part of me I mean and I've done this even in a couple episodes ago I tied this urgent concern to queerness and I think in some ways that's right, but I don't think it needs... I think queer is not to be disrespectful to the community, but I'm not even sure that it's useful shorthand and for this conversation. I think the dynamics of power and privilege when... And by this kind of power, I mean really the ability... I do mean subjugating, the ability to subjugate others the privilege of of a lot of avoiding danger at its very base, you know, not to mention like everything else that privilege can mean. I think that power and privilege allows you not to pursue this type of relationship with your natural energy reservoirs urgently. It's possible that it's because you just need less energy to survive, right? And I don't know why, so this is me just talking shit at this point. But because you're not pressed or you're not in conflict on every front, maybe you just need less energy. So you're not desperately searching your pantry, like the pantry of your soul for like how to make dinner. You know, you just order off seamless. And it's like, I'm good. You know, like, I don't need, I'm, I'm good. Whereas, like, people that are poor are like, how am I going to make this meal out of some beans that I didn't hydrate, that I didn't soak? And it's a different, perhaps it's out of that need for resource in order to survive that makes some people more urgent, makes some people urgently pursue this emotion, the harnessing of emotion, I, I, don't, I don't really know why. So I don't want to get into that. Even though I did just get into that. Um, 
But my concern for Joy is exigent. Like, it's a, my immediate... It's, it's at the forefront of my mind. And not just that. It's like... I'm saying Joy as kind of a coverall or whatever. But all of my... Emo- I want to bring everything that I am to the surface. And for whatever reasons, you know... I guess the reasons, the causes, the causes don't matter, but that desire is both an accurate description of who I am and an aspirational state, right? Like, I do this already, but I know I could do more because I know that trauma and privilege, my own kind of stops me in some ways. The fact that I don't, you know, as a cis man, I can I can just choose not to dress in a certain way. You know, it's not and granted you know, I do like my things, so and I have been in danger based on the way that I dress and present. But my decision not to wear, you know, lipstick, or this is an example, this is a tried example, so I don't mean to offend. But my decision not to wear lipstick, for example, is not, it has nothing to do with my dysphoria. It doesn't cause me a dysphoric state. It's not, my mental health is not hinged upon this lipstick. Whereas people that experience dysphoria, maybe this lipstick just for today eases their dysphoria. And it's, it, and just, even if it doesn't ease it tomorrow, even if it, it just eases it for one day, it is giving them the mental health to survive this world. And the fact that that wearing of that lipstick can put them in harm's way when they're just trying to survive, it makes them, it makes the choice of wearing lipstick a life or death or a healthy or not, a healthy or sick choice. Whereas for me, lipstick is not a healthy or sick choice. I can wear it or I cannot. I like it. Oh, I don't really wear I mean, this is as an example. I don't really wear lipstick, but I do have lipstick and I do, you know, I do fuck it up when I put it on. That's not, that's not, <laughs> you know. Um, but you see that urgency is different. And because I've had this cisgendered experience and I don't need to ease dysphoria, even though I might like looking a certain way, I'm not facing, it's not a mental health question for me. In some ways, that does make me seek, that does allow me to be okay with certain forms of compartmentalization, of certain ways that I don't urgently recruit every style of me, everything and everything that I have at my disposal. You know, recently I asked two of my friends like what they liked about me, um, basically. I think I asked it in a different way. I was not talking about my character. I was really talking about like how I showed up in the world. And both of them said that they liked that I could wear what I want, that I somehow make it work, and that they would like me to do that more. And they they were referencing like, I mean, I've worn like 
all types of shit from all different gender presentations. Like, I'll wear anything as people who know me know. And I feel at home in it. So it's not like I'm wearing it for a costume or for play. And that I think that's why it kind of works, because I feel at home in what I'm wearing. But I say all that to say that I've, in recent years, abandoned it. And not because I felt away, not because, you know, it's just not urgent for me because I have the privilege of it not being urgent. And in that way, it has allowed something that is valuable, that makes me feel good about myself because I do feel powerful when I'm able to wear different things. I do have a confidence, have a, you know, it does make me feel better to be able to express myself in a variety of ways. Um, But I've let that go to the side because of, because I have the privilege to. And I say that as an example because it, I wanted to start with me and where I show up with my privilege. I also wanted to make the point that it, is compounded when you think about the other privileges. So when you talk about the danger that a straight man faces, a danger that a non-black straight man faces, a danger that, you know, all of these things, asking them to now urgently pursue wholeness, urgently pursue, you know, a profound relationship with joy to urgently harness their emotions, to feel them with everything that they are, to, to, you know, to see the project of maturity as wielding raw emotion. You know, that's the thing. It's, I have this idea a lot where it, that I don't ever say it so the words are going to be really fucked, but... It's an idea that I have that's like, let me see what we're doing on time. Okay, we're not bad. It's that you really have two ways of gaining control of yourself, particularly along emotions, right? You can allow your emotions to be as raw, as ugly, as encompassing as they are. Allow your passions to rage and become skilled at wielding and directing that power. Or you can suppress your emotions so that they don't have that much power anymore. And that your, your logic and your mind and your reasoning can make all your decisions for you and create your motivations out of the air. And... Those two, um, there may be more, I don't know, but those two pathways are very different. What strength means in in that construct are there different versions of strength. And it's funny because I think about this from dealing with straight men, honestly, like not in the way that like, I think I've learned this idea from straight men because I've watched straight men with anger issues a lot all of my life frankly 
And I have seen straight men take different approaches. Because I bring straight men up because they are the most skilled at violence. They are the most permitted to be violent. So ones that have anger issues are permitted to be violent. And I have seen the men that are angry, but they use their anger. They direct it to sports, to fitness, to... You know, they, they figure out some physical practice to direct it and to better their lives. They, use, they, they wait for opportunities, which I'm not saying it's, you know, they wait for opportunities to be violent and, and defense of others. So they use, the def- they use that defense. They are genuinely defensive of others, but they're also, they want a reason to act crazy, you know. And I have seen that. And I have seen the other way where they, because the anger has led them to violence and they have no control over it, they quell all of their power categorically. They become, I don't want to say just, I mean, I'm going to use the word impotent, but I don't mean it in the sexual way, even though, um, but they become (laughs) quelled. They quell everything that they are because they cannot trust their anger. They cannot trust themselves to wield it. So they do nothing at all. And that, to me, is more tragic than the former, even though the former, you know, is precarious. So... I guess what I mean to say, just to sum that section up, is that I understand that privilege and power allows people to compartmentalize and distance themselves from their emotions and to not feel it, to not need it, to not use it. And I would say... I'm trying to avoid being judgmental, but I guess in my emotional experience, they pose a pro- it poses a they are obstacles to completeness, to complete humanity, you know, to to your highest self-actualized, you know, from my perspective. You can make the argument that people Maybe they have an easier path to wholeness, that, you know, that they are whole and they don't need the energy to get there and that the joy that they experience is endemic to their world's view. So they don't need to be pressed, in short. I don't know if I buy that. Because what does wholeness mean and completeness mean if it's not measured in in part, how much you feel your feelings. How else do you know you're alive and sentient? Like, I I don't know. I don't necessarily buy that, but I wanted to put it out there. I did have something here that I wanted to share um, that I wrote. I think I'm just going to read it because... um, 
I think it's better. I wrote, I have not, I think I already kind of talked about it, but I was like, I have not reached my most urgent, which would, I imagine, be a matter of life or death. Even though I've always been more concerned with the well-being of others than my own. But regardless, this concern is exigent. It's burning. It's wailing. It's ringing out my lungs. And it's making me panic. And I wanted to talk about... I wrote that. And I going to do a quick little thing and then move on. You know, personally, I, I had panic attacks when I was 24, about 24 to 28. Which is amazing to me. At the time, I thought it was amazing because maybe it was 24 to 27, because I never had panic as a child. Um, I had anger as a child, you know, all these other things, and I was anxiety in some ways, insomnia. But panic, I never had. And I would think, based on what I was experiencing in my childhood, that I w- that's when I would have had the panic attacks. That in the comfort of my sort of professional, white-collar, corporate life, that I would not have panic attacks because I had seen real shit and been through real shit. So, and especially, and my panic attacks were acute, were most, like, acute on the train going to work, which also bothered me because... I'm a train riding ass bitch, okay? Like, I have been riding the train. Like, everybody who knows me that grew up with me knows that I've been on the train. Like, by myself. I love the train. Like, I hate people on the train, but I love the MTA. I love the subway system. Like, now it's kind of, like, it's always been trash, but I just like the ingenuity. Like, I like the engineering of it. Like, I have beef with it. I'm not going to I'm not sucking his dick. I just think it's a marvel. I think it's just a, a marvel of the city. I think that back then, what, 150, 125, you know, if you were a kid who was 75 cents, I can... But for 75 cents, I could go to the Bronx. I could go to Queens. I can go to the, you know, the zoo in the Bronx. I can go to Flushing Meadows. I could go to Times Square for 75 cents. Like, for the price, cheaper than a Snapple, I could go and travel. Like, and see things that people come across the world to see. So, for me, the subway was great. Um, they used to do half price for kids. It, that, that shit is over with. They had the reduced fare on them. Do they still do? I don't know, but that shit was lit back then. Um, and I realized that the panic came from this concern that I have now, but I have language for it now. My concern for being a whole person, my concern for being, you know, to experiencing joy fully, the urgency that I wanted that was causing me panic. I was panicking. And I thought it was because I hated my job. And I thought, you know, all of these things which are in some ways true, but a lot of people hate their jobs and they aren't having panic attacks. A lot of people are doing jobs that they never thought they would do, whatever. And they're not panicking, having to go between train cars to not look crazy while they're catching their breath. You know, it's my, the urgency of being a whole person for me because of my traumas and what I, what I understand is the dangers that affect me made it feel like I was, you know, like there was some life or death threat that I could not breathe. You know I mean? I remember feeling like how, how is it that I can't breathe and being worried that somehow I would 
you know, die on the on the train that no one would help me. And like, it was just a crazy situation that I described in terms of hating my job, but it really was the, it was me coping with the fact that I could not be a whole person in my dynamic, in this life that I built for myself. And I watched other people, all of them straight, do this happily, have a similar understanding, but not have the panic. And was jealous of it, frankly. And just never understood how I could do this. And even like the most, all of them straight and most of them men. How they, you know, this compartmentalization could work so well and why I couldn't do it. Like, why couldn't I do this? So that I could be rich and like comfortable and like, you know, without panic, you know. Um... So on the other side, I'm going to try to, uh, we have time, but let's, there's more tea. On the other side of this whole one, oneness conversation, there is something that I'm working on personally now. And I've been working on it for a while. That's just the thing about growing up. It's like, sometimes the knowledge that, like, I've known this shit for 10 years, but I feel like I'm really only getting around to it now. Like, I don't know. But... I feel that there is conflict in the American mythology of like self-esteem and specialness between that and having a self-esteem that is real. Like I don't <laughs> So let me let me let me let me not say that. But okay, so here's what I mean by that. As a minority, as a person in the minority, based on my identities, I learned to accept that I was going to be the only one in this space, especially if I wanted to, in the upwardly mobile capitalistic context, you know, no black gays in finance, even though there was one um, that I knew. But but especially not in the business side. Like if you, you know, you might get some HR and things. No shade. We love HR. But and I'm probably going to end up in HR because, you know, shout out, you know, HR, we'll take some HR contracts. So, you know what it is. But um, I had just accepted that, especially because it was literally my life. I mean, when I went away to boarding school and this predominantly white institution, elite institution, there were we had a good amount of black people, but still no, nowhere near to what it would have been like if I had stayed at home. And then underneath that, you think about, you know, men, which, you know, and I don't know if this, what the numbers are like now. And at least when I was there, there were actually a lot more men than there were women um, at my boarding school. But as you go to, you know, private or upper echelon, like whatever they call it, secondary, the colleges, um, the numbers are more black women than men. Then you think about queerness, and I really felt like 
at the age that I was at, there was nobody that I could really talk to, to discover, to, you know, really discuss the range of my experience. So I just assumed that I would be, that my task was going to be to be the only one and to figure out how to bridge my way into the straight world. And I already was a straight person expert because I'd only had straight people on TV. You know, like in the 90s, there were no, the only black gays that you saw on TV had AIDS, you know, so you weren't really like out here. It wasn't until like the 2000s of like Noah's art, and that was the only one. And it was just like, that was it. I have watched stories of heterosexual love, seen heterosexual love in my family and things. So I just thought that was what I was that was what it was for me. And when I got older, I realized that this is flawed, that community, that there are multiple ways of being closeted in short. You know, you can be closeted in a way where you don't tell anyone your truth. And you can also be closeted in a way where you are public, but you don't have community. You refuse to see yourself in others. You don't have, you don't see seeing your face in the face of those around you as a priority. You've come to accept being the only one. And when you do that, it's a different kind of closetedness because you come to learn, just like in the other type of closetedness, that the specificity of your problems can only be solved by you. And that's like a feature of closetedness that's really unfortunate. That's what, that is what buries people. That is what feels suffocating. Because you feel like... You feel like... The problems are only yours and therefore they are insurmountable. You feel like you have to create every solution... To, the, to every problem, that you have to generate every resource. It has to come from you. And that feeling, yes, you're public. Yes, you know, you are the star of the show. You're the life of the party. You are this, you are that. And people laud you for your strength, your creativity, your all these things. But the feeling of having to generate every resource that you have is a feeling that will bury you. It will put you six feet under prematurely. It will end your life. And the people that feel like that are closeted people. And I do see, I, I personally know a lot of black women that feel like that. That they have to create everything. They have to do everything. That there's nothing else. You know, there's, there's a dearth of sisterhood. There's a dearth of brotherhood. There's a dearth of otherhood, you know? Like, there is this 
when you feel like you have to create everything for yourself, you till the soil of your spirit, you know, until there's nothing left. So there's nothing left. So there's nothing but, you know, you might have some whispers of your childhood dreams, like what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be. Whispers echoing in the background. <laughs> but that's it. Like, <laughs> that's it. It fatigues you. And it's like, I don't want to say that the I'm not comparing the closetedness. You know, I'm not doing that. I'm not ranking them. But I'm saying... I'm saying that the way, the mythology that we use to get ourselves, some of the mythology or the mythology that some of us use that to get ourselves out of this, of, the, of closeted version one of when you're ashamed of yourself or when you don't tell anybody your truth. We often tell people, oh, everybody has something special about them. That just, that just makes you special. That just makes you this. That just makes you that. You are, you are, you know, great and blah, blah, blah. And that, all that is cute. And you are great. But this belief in your specialness and your and your singularity the belief in your singularity can backfire it can backfire it can make you think that nobody has the same challenges as you it can make you think that you have to create everything for yourself it can make you exhaust your own resources it can make you be afraid, unwilling, uh, resistant to see your face and others. It can rob you of the ability to create relationships, to create community, to participate in community, to lead compassionately. This, the belief in your singularity is, is, is something that is a negative aspect of oneness. It's a negative uh, externality to the, special, the myth of our specialness. And it's not to say that we are all the same. You know, I don't really know what girls need to hear to make them, to, to, to save their self-esteem when they hear that they are not special. But I'm here to tell you that you're not special, that I'm not special. I'm here to tell you that. Your dignity is undeniable. You deserve all the things. And you do have gifts to contribute. But the problems you face are not specific enough to make you feel like you have to do everything for yourself. And yes, there are people on this earth that are alone that have the rarest of rarest diseases that nobody knew what it was and that face. Like, I feel like 
able I feel like ability, health, that's why I get so, I always talk about ableism because I get so upset about it because health is something that can make you feel so alone when you're by yourself. And I've been fortunate not to have severe like health issues, but I've had family that has. And I've had, you know, severe depression, the depressive states, and even the panic that I shared. It's like I would feel like I would die and no one would say it would bat an eye. Like there's this uh a Mary Baraka's the the Dutchman where you know he's killed on the train and people just get on. That's what I felt. And when I was having when I have depressive episodes and I feel like I need somebody to literally come in my house and pick me out of you know when I felt you know when my, I was going through that era and pick me up and stand me up and I had nobody to do that. I felt alone. But these are things that I've been able to conquer. There are no cure. There's no there are no cures for some of these illnesses that people face. Or, you know, different being differently abled. They these things can feel alone. You can they can feel um isolating. And that is the worst kind of situation to be in, you know? And I just don't encourage, I just want everybody to be delivered from that. Um, Yeah, I do think I have more, but I might just end here. I might just stop here. Um, Oh, I do want to say this. I do want to say this. And then I'm going to stop. This also applies to love and romance. When I reflect on my relationships, um, the last one that I was in, I really feel that what ended our relationship was a lack of community support. It's not that our communities were, were against us. We had loving, we both had loving friends. It's that in both of our communities, we did not have gay, black, or queer black elders to ask for advice. We didn't have many queer black relationships around us. So when we were facing challenges that other people have faced, we had to reinvent the wheel in order to solve it. Neither of us could do that. Or in doing that, and reinventing the wheel, we rode on our own because we had no model. We, did, we genuinely could not figure it out. And there were real challenges, but we couldn't solve them because we just didn't have... It, it's too much. It's too much to live your life as black, queer men face challenges every day in your profession and you're this, like chase your dreams, do all these things, not have much experience, and then innovate every single solution that you have <laughs> because you have no one to talk to because you have a whole, lot, a whole lot of straight people in your life 
And you don't have many queer people that are in relationships. And you have queer people that secretly want to sleep with you and it's like messy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just not... It's just a mess. And I remember in college, and I will leave with this, this couple that I love. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to too much of their tea. But they got engaged their senior year and then they got married when I graduated. And I was talking to the groom, who's a friend of mine, and about just being married young. And he was like, you know, over, y'all think being married young is like going to be a challenge. And it, it, there will be challenges because relationships are, can be challenging. But I have a community of young couples and a community of parents, and everyone's invested. And not in a way that's, you know, they're not putting pressure on us, but they love us, and they're willing to give real support. If we get sick, if we, you know, have financial troubles, like, they're willing to really support us. So it's a safe place for us to love each other in this community. There's collective wisdom, there's, you know, it's, I don't, we don't have, like, it, there will be challenges, but we are not doing this. We're not the first people to do this shit. Well, he didn't say that because he's really cursed, but. And I was like, word. And I still think about that to this day. Because the concept of relationships just being between the two of you, that can work. It can work. But it's harder. It's harder to be by yourself. If you have a community that steps in and really is behind you and wants you to be happy and in love and survive, it makes all this shit so much easier. And with that, you know, have a good ass week. I love you guys. Thanks for supporting this episode 62. So we doing, we moving. I'm going to try to do something cute for y'all at 100, but, you know, we got some time for that. Um, But I love you. Thanks for the support. Thank you, patrons, and I'll see y'all next week.